0: I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about the business and culture of bookselling in the 21st century. This week, we jumped to San Francisco to Green Apple Books. Green Apple has been around forever. They're in a building that survived the notorious 1906 earthquake. Needless to say, they have a storied history and remain a critical piece of the culture in the Richmond district and larger San Francisco area. I talked to Pete Mulvihill, co-owner of the store. Pete's smart and super thoughtful, and we cover a lot of ground in 30 minutes. We talked over a video stream, so I apologize for any parts with bad audio. Here's our conversation. So I want to start uh, kind of where all stories start. Um, I, I'd like to get the origin story um, and how and when you enter into the mix in the store's history.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, well, the store started in 1967. Um, hopefully you can tell that I'm not that old. <laughs> uh, I, moved, I moved to San Francisco in 1993, um, fresh out of college and um, looked around for jobs and I uh, ended up running out of my savings without hadn't found family anything great and I just took a temp job to work here at Green Apple. Um initially I was just helping out the bookkeeper, um, matching packing slips to invoices and entering sales in the journal and that kind of thing. Um that only lasted a couple of weeks, but that's how I got my foot in the door. And um and then gradually over time I got more interesting work and got promoted. And then in about about four or five years in, the original owner asked if me and another guy would like to buy the store from him. Um and we said, you know what, you pay us. There's no way we have any money to buy the store from you. Uh, and he said, Yeah, I figured that out. And um so we did sort of an we got a third partner and um did sort of an owner financed buyout.
0: Yeah, you guys kind of innovated this idea of bookstore succession planning, right? Yeah, I think so. And there's sort of similar things that have been done since. Um, but
1: you know, we we didn't know of any other and there may have been other people that have done this, but we certainly didn't know about it. So um, it was I think it was pretty new.
0: Are you guys in the same pre nineteen oh six building?
1: Yeah, it started in just the bottom half of the that main story, five oh six Clement Street. It was just seven hundred and fifty square feet. Right. Um, and then I think the shoe shop next door went out of business at some point. And so we expanded width wise and the stairs, and then he added the mezzanine and on and on. And, and in the late nineties we bought the record store just a couple doors down, it was called Revolver, and expanded into that building too. So it's now about 10 times its original size but we we're still on the same you know same block location.
0: are you guys still selling music yeah
1: we do a pretty good business with vinyl with
0: um you said that there's three co-owners what's the division of labor are you guys all kind of involved
1: yeah we're all involved um, i guess i do the most administrative and behind the scenes kind of things so i do financial stuff uh, hiring personnel le- anything legal union negotiations lease negotiations manage the finances work with the bookkeeper um, marketing and outreach and um, that kind of stuff. One of my business partners deals with all the used books um, and used stuff, used records, everything. Um, and then the other partner deals with all the new books. Obviously, we have a big staff, so it's not like we do all the work, but that's kind of the division of labor and on the three others.
0: How many people do you have working for you guys?
1: There's 20 people here on the on main store. We also have another store across the park right on Ninth Avenue. It's newer, um, and there's seven or over
0: there. That store on the park, is that a, a franchise or a li- like a licensing thing or do you guys own and operate that as well?
1: Yeah, we own and operate it operated as well.
0: Are, do you guys have any plans for more?
1: Not currently. Um, that was sort of a defensive move. A lot of people think, oh, Green Apple's doing so well that they're going to open more and make more and more money. But honestly, it was uh, almost more of a defensive move because that, that neighborhood has always supported and needed a bookstore. Um, so we were afraid else might do it. And also, it was a way to sort of raise our top line as expenses were pinching the bottom line um, with raising rents and labor and health insurance and all that. So, um, you know, we'd probably be open to opportunities if there was something special, but the way land, the rental costs in San Francisco generally are just so brutal that, um, our business
0: model is tough. Sure. Um, there's a trend going on in, and I, and I think you know about this, in San Francisco, there's a place called Books, Inc. Um, in Brooklyn, there's a few stores. Um, and in Seattle, there's a place called Third Place. These local independent stores are becoming mini chains. Um, and a lot of the bookstore owners that I've talked to and just sort of like the parlance of, of the business is that there's this need for a third place. Um, is this growth a function of just a demand for more third places? Or do you see something else going on?
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's it's ever since 2000, let's see, 2009, when the economy really bottomed out and bookstores bottomed out. uh, There have been more and more independent bookstores opening in this country year after year. Sometimes it's a new store that replaced, you know, say Borders went out of business with 50,000 square feet. And then somebody in that town opened a small bookstore with 2,000 square feet or 3,000. There's been a lot of that evolution from giant stores to small ones. Uh, There are, like us, um, like third place. There, there are definitely bookstores that open second and third locations because there are there are some economies of scale. Um, BookSync really has it; they have ten or twelve stores, yeah. um, including airport stores. They they really have their own warehouse, and you know that's that's a whole other level. Um, I know the people that own both those stores and third place. I love the concept of third place. I think that's a lot of why we are still around, is that people do need a place to go besides home and work. Um, for some people, it's the gym. For some people, it's the bar. For our customers, it's the bookstore. Um, you know, that explains it all. You know, I think the third place is part of it. Um, there's also a discovery, I think, that happens in bookstores that, that doesn't happen online. Um, Amazon is fantastic at search. And they're great at getting you things quickly, um, but they're, they're pretty bad still at browse. You know, you don't just go log on to Amazon and say, I wonder what I should buy today. You know, you go looking for something. And, and when people walk into my store, largely they want to be left alone and just kind of poke around and and find things. And everybody says when they're checking out with their four or five books, I came in for one
0: thing. Look, like, You know, I tell them I can't this model. <laughs> yeah. Um, you guys are consistently voted one of the best. You're on all kinds of lists. And um, if not the best store in the Bay Area, then you're certainly at the very top. Uh, and you've also gotten praise from authors, high praise from authors like Dave Eggers. What's been your formula? You know, it's and, and to me, it's got to be bigger than just customers choosing you. What are you guys doing differently?
1: Yeah it's kind of hard to say i mean ultimately no matter what we do it is the customers choosing us it's you know we, we can only do what we can do and the reason we're still here is because enough people come in and spend money every day uh, so no matter how how brilliant or, or stupid we are it's really up to the customers um, So we're here because enough people choose every day to to buy something here now beyond that you know what differentiates us from other stores um, I think the physical location is so unusual, it's you know, a sprawling store with you know four or five different levels and mezzanines and nooks and crannies and alcoves. Um, I think the mix of new books and used books is pretty good. Um, the, the people who are on more of a budget and are just kind of you know shopping for something cheap will find something great to be here. Um, our bargain bins, I mean, I think you could shop just those bargain bins that are out front of the store. You can read really well out there for, for a long time not paying full price for a book, but then of course there's people who just heard about the latest thing on TV or on Terry Gross and they come in to buy whatever's just published. Um, so there's not a ton of stores that really do a deep hybrid of new and used books. Um, and then we have just a giant selection. I mean, it's, it's a huge store compared to, to many. You know, the, the formula right now seems to be about 2,500 square feet, more more than triple that. So,
0: um, and it just kind of feels, it has some sort of authentic feel to people. There's a smell to it. There's a, there's a look. It's just kind of a place where people like to spend time. Talk about the value of the browsing experience and the science behind creating and making a highly browsable store. To me, I feel like there's an alchemy that goes into what you do. And and I'd just like to hear in your words what you think about when you walk in your store and how you how you approach displaying it to the public.
1: Right. Um, You know, in some ways, as a as a second owner of the store, um, I can't take a ton of credit for the initial layout of the store and the design. It's kind of, you know, we bought it from somebody else. Um, so it wasn't a specific vision we had. We're, we're really against the store. Um, we, we sort of we need sales per square foot to be at certain levels. So if we removed half the bookcases and made it a more spacious place, a, we cut our selection in half. B, it would be a, a different kind of store. So, we're a very dense, tightly packed store with a really deep inventory. There are other stores, there's one that I opened up near my house out near Outer sunset. They're probably, they're probably 2,000 square feet and they probably have 1,000 books. So, it's, this, it's a very stripped down, bare selection. And, you know, any reader is going to find something good in there. So, I, I totally get what they're going for. And it's very spare, it's comfortable, um, it's easy to see the books because you're not looking through thousands of them. But it's you know, just a different model. I mean, for us, you know, we want people to kind of to feel like they can be lost, you know, so they feel like they can not know where the front door is, <laughs> because there are so many interesting books in front of them. Um, so we have, you know, all these different levels and outcomes and books and crates. We try to present, you know, the new books. We try to present what's most recent and interesting. Um, we try to make sure we have books that a lot of stores don't carry. We're working with a lot of small press. We take things on a consignment. Um, so we try to you know, just make sure the selection itself, the books are what people are here for. So we want to make sure that they're interesting and not exactly the same as they're going to see at some other store. Um, so a lot of it has to do with the physical
0: point again, but also the selection of books, I think. You actually just fed right into my next question, which is uh, not being able to compete on price uh, you know, with Amazon and so on and so forth means that you have to have um, a laser focus on curation and discovery. What's your curation process and, and how do you, how do you know what to stock? Do you have tools? Is it largely instinctual?
1: Uh, it's both. I mean, we have, we have data, you know, when Harry Potter seven comes out, we look back at how Harry Potter six went. So there, there's certainly, we have sales history and numbers. Um, the, a lot of, a lot of that kind of stuff is easy. You know, the, the, the lone planet guide to France last year, sold this many copies. There's a new edition. That, that stuff's easy. Um, the harder part more of the art, I think, is is what we take a chance on um, for new authors that don't have a track record. Um, we're well served by sales reps from a publishing company who, um, you know, they also have a good sense of what we sell and what we don't, and they can kind of tell us, even if they haven't read the whole book, you know, oh, it sounds like this is book is this kind of thing. And so we have these conversations um, about books um, between it's really just kind of person to person. And we try to engage the broader staff, again, with 20 people who work here. Um, we try to make sure everybody has the books that they love and they want to sell on the shelves. Um, so it's kind of a mixture of, of art and science, uh, but it's it's pretty heavily reliant on instinct. And because mix, we are a big store, take chances that other stores can't. So uh, you know we have the ability to take some take some risks and try things that may or may not work.
0: If you had to put a number on it. Uh, what percentage of customers walk in? We talked about the, your, being a new and used bookstore hybrid. What percentage of customers walk in for a specific thing but leave with one or two titles they never planned on or heard of?
1: Probably ninety percent
0: <laughs> it's a truism that uh, the experience that you get in a store like yours is so much different than just scrolling through uh, amazon's a hundred you know hot titles. The best service you provide is that serendipity you know and just be like you said being able to get lost if i got to
1: give a nod to the staff too there are, there are people who want to be here and be left alone and do their own thing. But then there are customers who want to come in and talk to somebody. Um, So we have, (laughs) ignore my business partner, passing by in the background. There are people who come in and they want to talk to somebody about um, what, what to read next and ask questions. And so um, obviously the staff is a, is a key part in how customers interact with the store. Um, You know, some people want to be left alone and browse and other people want to have a conversation. So um, we have a well-read staff here that, um, and, and again, because we have so many people who are here, there's somebody that knows something about every section. So if somebody wants to know what next great sci-fi novel to read, I can't answer that, but I'll pass you off to Martian.
0: Yeah. Out. And it sounds like you really put a priority on that because you're so well staffed. You have you kind of have an angle and, and an answer for any particular question that walks through your door. Um, I read that you guys were part of an MBA case study. What were the findings of that study?
1: Um, and us see if I can remember it. I mean, they they were sort of trying to figure out on their own why Green Apple still existed or why brick-and-mortar bookstores still existed. Um, and they came up with um, – they did research in the store. They talked to customers out of the store. They talked to people that didn't go to bookstores. Um, and they came up with, um, I think, four things. One was – I'm down so I can get them all. Um, so one was discovery, which we kind of already talked about, um, finding things that you didn't know you wanted or you didn't know existed um another one was um community which is you know the idea that you'd see a familiar face you know the center of my neighborhood is a is a produce market and you just kind of run into other parents from the school or your neighbor and, and that's kind of where the, the community runs into each other um that happens here at the store too so you see you know i see my kids preschool teachers from 10 years ago um neighborhood and neighbors um, so it's, it's that community aspect that's the second one um the third one is, is duty which is kind of the the shop local message, people feel obliged. Um they feel like if I don't shop a green apple, it will go away. Um and I want to have this by community, so I need to support it. So people do have a sense of um, you know, that they vote with their wallets on what they want the world to look like. Um so duty was the other one that came up with the last one was beauty. So some of that a little bit of that was sort of as a physical object because they did this study um in the days of the ebook ascension. Um but it was also the the, the beauty of the store. And in some ways the store is a bit draggled old ship. <laughs> in other ways, um, it's a beautiful place to be. Um, very photogenic. So those are the four main things they came up with. The last one in, in economic speak was animal spirits, which is um, this Keynesian idea that people don't always act in their own economic self-interest. Um, you know, you pay $3 for a cup of coffee on your way to work that you could have made it home for 50 cents. So, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, people know everything we have is, you know, they
0: could find somewhere else cheaper, but either they want it now or, you know, the duty and the beauty are more important than the price. It's so funny. I've had uh, some other conversations as well about like the logic of having a cafe and a bookstore, and the the answer kind of unanimously is well because g- consumers will spend six dollars or nine dollars for a coffee and a and a snack, but they grumble at having to pay two or three dollars more for yeah. a book.
1: The, the price model thing is, is is really strange in books, and that's one of our biggest challenges. Is you know, everything in San Francisco costs more? A gallon of gas, an apartment, a parking ticket, uh, a cup of coffee. Um, but a book can't. We can't raise our prices. You know, the books are set by the publishers. People know that they're cheaper somewhere else. Um, so when, when the minimum wage goes from twelve to fifteen dollars over three years, a coffee shop down the street they raise their prices you know, from two dollars to three dollars, and nobody blinks an eye. But if I try to a hardcover book that was thirty bucks and make it thirty three, um, no, it didn't work. So that's that's one of the other challenges with this the whole entire publishing and, and book selling industry is, is this price expectation that's that's set. This you know there are bookstores that are grateful that the publisher set the price because they can then justify it to the customer. The customer will say $30 for a hardcover, that's insane. And they say, hey, the publisher sets the price.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it um, can, can cut both
1: ways. But for us, that's, that's one of the essential challenges in this business that's different from other retailers is that we only really set our prices.
0: What do you say to people? I don't know how many of these conversations you have, but what do you say to people that want to open a bookstore today? How can they make it work if they don't have the footing that you have, um, if they don't have the real estate in place? Um, and the history and the sort of like the goodwill that comes with the, with the business that's been around for so long. What would you say to somebody who wanted to start one from scratch today?
1: Um, I actually met with a guy two weeks ago who's about 25 and uh, he's worked at Facebook for four years and he saved some money and he's moving to Brooklyn to, to Brooklyn or to Brooklyn, I think, yeah, um, to open a bookstore. And so he had been out here for an hour. Um, I mean, I told him, in some ways, I told him the to at least do three of the four things that that MBA group told us. That we have, you know, the duty community and duty of discovery. Um, if you can get at least three, or four of those, three of those four, he's a good way there, I think. Um, if you can get all four, I think that's what makes the a, a store really special. He's also doing a little bit of a hybrid, so he's going to have a tea shop. He's, he's really into tea. Um, so, you know, if, if the bookshop can break even, but the tea can make him some money, um, that's another formula. I know somebody who owns a bookstore in Boston and they. Their cafe restaurant is what makes the money, and the bookstore just breaks even. But they want to be booksellers, not restaurateurs, so they have this hybrid, and that's what you know keeps that one going. Um, so my advice, you know, I, I wouldn't try to talk somebody out of it. Honestly, I still think it's a viable business in the long run. Um, and you know, that we showed when we opened that other store four years ago that we, you know, believe in it too. Um, yeah. But I'd say you know it's, it's those four those four main components that you can educate your customer. Obviously, there's there's truisms in. in retail about foot traffic and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I really think if people serve their communities well, carry the books that people are interested in around them and, um, make it a beautiful place, uh, it should work.
0: Great. Um, when you see now that Amazon is opening physical stores, what goes through your mind, if anything?
1: Oh shit.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder how you see them. How do you view it? Do you view it as competition? Do you view it as sort of just a sign of the times or is there something in between?
1: Probably both. I mean, I don't, I don't think that they're not direct competition. I, I don't think that my customers would rather go to one of those stores. If there's one down the block, people would rather go to my store generally. Um, the risk is that they're, you know, they lost money for the first 20 years of their existence. It's only in the last two or three years that they've made a profit at all. It's so on web true. Services. It's not on books. Um, so they, they operate on, under a completely different set of rules than we do. The stores don't have to make money. They don't have to break even. Um, if, if mine loses money, then we close. Um, so it's, it's a little frustrating because, you know, they just play, they play by different rules because um, they can. Um, they are sterile stores. They remember 4,000 square feet with 4,000 titles. The titles are chosen by the data. Obviously, they, they can tell what people in their zip code want and are buying. Um, I don't think like a ton of discovery in there. Um, it's embarrassing the books that they don't carry. Um, you know, I'd be embarrassed to own a bookstore that didn't have a copy of catcher in the eye or something, that you know, there's a certain thing. Um, I don't think it's, my customers are really dying for that, but if there's one across the street, I know they would pick off some sales from the people that just want to, you know, save on price or just want that latest, hottest, bestseller to, at a good bargain.
0: Um, back to your store, what's the biggest pain point in your business?
1: Um, I think that, uh, there's a couple of things. <laughs> the, one is, is the, the challenges here of, um, the economy, you know, there are just so many jobs in San Francisco. It costs so much to live here. That keeping employees, you know, even even though we, we pay well, pay well for what you know what most of the rest of the country would think is a high wage. Um, we provide health insurance and all that to our employees. We treat them professionally, give them paid time off. Um, but it's still really hard to find an apartment in San Francisco that you can live in on a, on a bookseller's salary. So that's that's challenging, and I know we can't solve that. We're not going to fix the, the housing crisis in California. And we can't raise our prices accordingly. So that's a challenge. The other one, I guess, is is the, the discount we get from publishers. Um, it just really hasn't changed in years, and it's just not quite enough.
0: Yeah, it's a very antiquated model.
1: Yeah, we're trying to just, you know, like, we, half, not half my time, but a portion of my time is spent costing out our credit card processing service and trying to find somebody who will do it for 0.02% cheaper because, you know, 8% of our money comes in through credit card transactions and I can shave just under of a point off of each transaction. That's going to help me pay, you know, for the health insurance increase this year. So just the economics of the entire entire ecosystem and model are, are challenging. And then there's local, local pressures and concerns that a lot of, uh, you know, booming urban areas have. Being in San Francisco, we have Customers who are willing to pay more for books. There are people who are making a lot of money at their tech jobs, and they're happy to drop a hundred bucks on books and not think twice. And we definitely get something for being where we are as well. It's just a, it's a tough balance.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. You got to have disposable income to buy books because they're just generally more expensive commodities. But if no one lives in the neighborhood, then there's that's the, it's just a catch twenty-two. Um, you guys do a lot of events. Um, do you have you started broadcasting those online? Is that something that you guys are into or or thinking about?
1: We have no most of the events are done at our newer store because we don't have a lot of space on Clement Street to, to host a crowd. Um, we have done occasional uh, recordings and uploaded into SoundCloud and that kind of thing. Um, we have not, like, you know, Facebook Live or streamed an event before. Um, it's something we've thought about but never really gotten to. So um, I'm not sure if the, you know, the, the positive, of course, would be that you reach more people outside the walls of the store. The question is whether that would translate to anything tangible.
0: Uh, You're right. It's hard to tell what, how much that's going to translate to actual sales short-term, but long-term, it might be something that could be interesting. Pushes
1: your brand beyond your walls.
0: Exactly. To the
1: world. Uh, And I think publishers and authors like it because you're reaching more people than can come into your walls.
0: Um, this is kind of a deep question. So you're going to have to put your philosophical cap on. Is there an innovation or thing nobody is doing in your business right now?
1: The only one I can think of, the, the one thing that I've always wanted to try, but we haven't yet, is is have, letting customers text us. would be to have just a stored cell phone, um, because so many people like to communicate by text now. You can't just text your local bookstore and say, do you have a copy of Catcher in the Rye? Um, so...
0: That's, it's, that's not going to be a giant game changer, but um, it's an evolution that I haven't heard of our switch that that I, I think might be valuable. So you couldn't just set up a phone and have a number and like give it out and have somebody man it?
1: You absolutely could. You absolutely could. Nobody's doing it. I mean, I haven't done it sort of because nobody else has done it. And we have, because we have so many staff, I don't know who's, you know, I don't know how interruptive it's going to be to the person who's doing some other work at the time or if somebody's going to walk home with the phone by accident or what. So I just kind of been gunshot. Yeah. No, but it's interesting. Yeah.
0: Nine times out of 10, I'd rather text somebody than talk to them on the phone. It's you're onto something. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, why not let somebody text us and we'll get back to them. If it's not in 30 seconds, it's within five minutes. That's not deep philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we don't really, I don't think, I don't
0: think there is something, I don't think there is some deep philosophical thing that could change that would make, whole book-selling world better. Um, but I'd be trying it. Um, what does the word bookstore mean to you in
1: 2018? Um, ideas and community. Um, just, you know, it's, it's the world distilled into words. And, and then it's a gathering place for people who care
0: about that. Well said. What are you reading right now? Let's see. I'm reading a book called There There, which is um,
1: a, a forthcoming novel by a, an urban Indian. So he's a Native American who grew up in Oakland, and the whole novel sort of focuses on Native Americans in an urban environment and, and what it means to be Native American um, when you're not tied to the, the land in a more historical way. It's, it's pretty interesting. I think it's going to be a really big book. The guy's name is Tommy Orange.
0: How do you stumble on books? You're a bookseller. How do you, how do you decide what to read?
1: That's tough. Um, we, we get this barrage of advanced reading copies from publishers. Sometimes somebody sends me a a, a note with my name and a handwritten note and says, you know, I think you like this. Um, Sometimes, uh, you know, I know a couple editors in New York, so sometimes I ask them what they have that they're most excited about. Um, Sometimes my wife just finished something that she loves and she passes it on. Uh, Mostly I try to read books that are forthcoming, but um, every once in a while you go back to a classic that you messaged or something i've kind of never gotten around to um and the pile next to the bed just gets bigger and bigger until at some point you say "All right, this has been a- never made to the bottom of the pile it's got to go uh because you know things fall
0: <laughs> yeah my stack i have to purge my stack at least every couple months otherwise my wife is not a happy camper yeah. um are there any writers or creators out there you'd like to mention that you think should be getting more attention yeah, i
1: love um Willie He's a he's a fiction writer. He's from Reno. He lives up, I think, in the Portland area now. He was in a band, an indie band called Richmond Fontaine. Um, I don't know the music terribly well, but they, they did spend years and years touring and toured Europe, and uh, I guess they have some renown. Um, but he writes this kind of I call it all shucks fiction. Um, this is kind of a simple, simple narrator, guys who're down in their luck. Um, there's there's a deep Nevada ness to it all. That's kind of a little dark. A little sad, a little barren, um, but he writes beautifully. He's got. There's a movie coming out of one of his books right about now. It's called Lean on Pete*. Um, it's about uh, horse track. people at a horse track. Um, his newest novel is called *Don't Skip Out on Me*. Um, it's a. It's beautiful. I just think he's. Um, he's just a. He's a very sweet and slightly sad. He creates these sweet and sad characters that just stick with you. So he's one of them. Um, this guy Brian Doyle I really like, he wrote The Plover, um, which is just a fun romp of a guy who goes out to sea to get away from it all. Um, it's, you know, it's a little bit allegorical, but, um, and then just all these, you know, he, he's trying to kind of get away, but then this, this plover, a bird lands on a ship and then this other guy comes and all of a sudden there's all these people in his life again. And it's kind of an interesting uh, allegory, but it's also, it's, it's also very funny. Um so those are, my, those are my top two for now, I think.
0: Very cool. Um, can you recall and share any surprise walk-ins that stand out in your mind?
1: Well, My, my favorite story is uh, Robin Williams got a start about a block from the store. There's a comedy club called the Holy City Zoo. And so he'd been coming to the store for decades. Um, he, he was in right when I was, I was pretty young. I was probably 25. It was 20 years ago. And he came in and he was browsing. And, um, and a customer came up to me and said, hey, is that who, who I think it is? I said, yeah. And he said, Is it, do you think it's cool if I say hi? And I said, yeah, he seems to not mind it. You know, just say hi and then leave him alone. Um, and the customer went up to the person next to Robin Williams and said, Dr. Sachs, I love everything you've ever written. So Robin Williams was in with Oliver Sachs, the um, anthropologist. Um, and I just love that our customer was struck by the writer Oliver Stacks and care less that
0: the movie star Robin Williams was right there next to him. That is really cool. That's kind of my favorite celebrity
1: story. But yeah, the other, the other we get, um, besides writers and that kind of thing, we, uh, we, we had a couple of weeks with a lot of Tom Waits, which was kind of fun. Um,
0: thanks for sharing those. If you weren't a bookseller, what would you be doing?
1: God, if I had figured that out, I would still be a bookseller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. I mean, when I got out of college, I thought I was going to get into journalism. Which would have been a very parallel career path. I think a lot of the challenges that have faced the bookstore are the same that it faced uh, journalism. I taught writing for a couple of years. I got a master's in degree in writing here at the University of San Francisco, and I taught part time. But honestly, I don't, I don't know what I do. I, I might
0: be doing it. Um, complete the sentence for me San Francisco is changing. What book have you recommended the most over the years?
1: Um, maybe a a fan's notes it's a novel by Frederick Exley or maybe Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates they're both older novels um, that I discovered long ago and I think they're uh, they're always fresh and interesting
0: and finally um, the most important question of all what's in your ideal sandwich
1: I think just bacon lettuce tomato and a little bit of mayonnaise
0: Pete this has been awesome thank you so much thanks, take care I'm Vic Singh, and you've been listening to Book Stories. Book Stories is produced by Alternate Thursdays in Los Angeles.